Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Colon American Crime Story Colon Impeachment. Uh, I am Katie Rich. I am the awards and audio editor for Vanity Fair. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Uh, We're delighted to be back here talking about another episode in the convoluted saga of Monica Lewinsky, Linda Tripp, Bill Clinton, and uh, in this week's episode, a couple of new characters who um, were very interesting to meet. Um, before we get started, the concept of the show, uh, every season we pick a different show, a different TV show that we want to discuss in depth. Uh, this season we are getting into American Crime Story Impeachment, which is the latest installment in the American Crime Story franchise on FX. Uh, it's created by Sarah Burgess. It has Ryan Murphy as executive producer who has been behind the whole thing. Um, and it's the story of the uh, Bill Clinton affair with Monica Lewinsky, with Monica Lewinsky as a producer, as we know. Um, And now we're up to episode five, which is titled, Do You Hear What I Hear? Um, We always encourage you to email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And as I've said, I am now checking the inbox uh, in Place of Joanna. And there were just a couple of um, emails that I wanted to read, one of which uh, came before this week's episode aired. But she pointed out uh, Linda's preoccupation. Oh, this is from Kim Russo, who said Linda's preoccupation with the Christmas ornament was a foreshadowing of her life after the Lewinsky Clinton mess. She owned a German Christmas decoration store in Middleburg, Virginia, before she passed away. Richard, you knew about Linda Tripp's Christmas store before we watched this series, right? I feel like we have, must have talked about this. I, I feel like I learned about it in preparation for watching the show. Like I wasn't like a detail that I'd held since 1998 in my head. I guess it would have been 2004. But um, but yeah, I think um yeah, the the Christmas stuff in this episode is both kind of funny, but also kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. We're, we have a lot of Christmas to talk about. Uh, and later in the episode, uh, I talked to Hallie Pfeiffer, who is uh, one of the writers on the show and wrote this episode and also was my friend in college. So I got no to reunite with uh, my friend wow. Hallie. Um, and in part of the episode that a uh, part of the interview that's on the episode is she she called Linda's Christmas store while she was writing the episode, like going to do some research and, um, you know, got to use that as some fact checking. This is back when Linda was still alive. Um, so I'm just glad that that was a, a source for for Linda information. Um, another fascinating email I wanted to read is from uh, Liz, who just is very short. And I love it's some like Loki style theorizing about this story, which I didn't expect. Have you noticed that in nearly every scene featuring President Clinton, there's a fire burning in the fireplace in the background? Is it meant to symbolize his burning loins or perhaps it's to subtly point out that his house is on fire? <laughs> I don't know which, but I just love that she noticed that. <laughs> do you, that's, do you yeah, have a theory? That's keen uh, observation. Um, I I think maybe it's both. Yeah. Um, I think I think that like. Obviously, he is at this sort of molten smoldering core of this thing Mm -hmm. um even though the show kind of shifts that to monica like i think in in the sort of zoomed out like i think this episode actually does a good job of showing that like ultimately in in terms of the pursuit of the you know the people against clinton like she was incidental you know Mm -hmm. they don't Mm -hmm. even really want to hear the details um and so maybe i don't know the the fire symbolizes that like at least in some people's perspective Clinton is at the core of this whole inferno. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I thought of it, you know, thinking back to the fireplaces, I think there's something about the coziness of a fire burning in the fireplace. And when you're living in the White House and you have someone around who can just light a fire for you at a moment's notice and it makes it feel very like you are kind of hunkered down in this space, even when, you know, Monica's out there in the rain on a, at a phone booth. Um, so maybe there's like a kind of visceral impact to it in addition to potential symbolism. Yeah, and there's a sort of stately, somewhat older gentleman quality to, yeah. you know, a real wood-burning fire. You know? Yeah, we should all be so lucky. Um, then one more email I wanted to read from Sarah, who um, wanted to endorse The Clinton Affair, which is a series, a, a documentary that Joanna watched and talked about some in earlier episodes of the series. And she just said, I want to strongly, strongly recommend it as a companion piece to the show. Exhaustively, marvelously done. They interview basically every single person involved with the inevitable and notable exception of the Clintons, of course. Um, and she also points out that um, you can see interviews with present day Paula Jones and Susan Carpenter McMillan uh, and how spot on the casting is, particularly Judith Light, um, who we don't get to see enough of in this episode. But any any Judith Light is good by me. Mm hmm. Um, well, to get into the episode, I wanted to start with Paula and Susan, um, who is not, you know, they're not in this episode too much. It is much more. There's a lot of different threads in this episode. I mean, well, it, honestly, before we even get into Paula and Susan, how did, that, how did this episode strike you? It's getting more convoluted. There's a lot going on, but it's also a Christmas episode. I thought it hung together pretty well. How about you? No, I think it, I think it is good. I think, you know, like I said, um, this episode really um, most potently registered for me as uh, that sort of perspective shift of, of realizing that like Linda and Monica, Monica kind of passively, Linda actively, uh, but nonetheless, both are, despite their heavy involvement in this whole situation, they are sort of ultimately ancillary to it. They are, they are props. They're being used by the FBI. They're being used by the independent investigation. They're being used by Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this episode, like with all of its kind of tragic little personal details, uh, Monica's like snappy peach suit, you know, mm. her, her excitement over the Revlon job, the uh, Linda's Christmas, you know, her Christmas village and all that stuff. It's like, it's reminding you of their sort of, um, you know, per personal specific fragile humanity. I mean, I think about yeah. like when Monica says to Linda at the, their lunch, she's like, we're talking about my real life here mm -hmm, and no mm -hmm. one, no one is thinking about that outside of themselves i guess yeah and you know linda thinks that she's thinking of monica and her real life and what she's at risk of but that's i think in this episode it becomes really evident how that's a lie she's telling herself to to keep going yeah um but speaking of being used by people that is kind of where the paula story finds us so she pops up kind of midway through the episode in, in little rock meeting up with her mother who has driven you know the 45 minutes on the highway to get there and um considers that like a pretty big journey um and obviously Annalie Ashford's Paula saying like oh my god mama is uh great I'm happy mm -hmm. to see her <laughs> yeah. um but also her mom is just kind of cottons on to Susan really quickly and you know is more or less like do not trust this woman and um you know good for Paula's mom I feel like Paula Paula's not capable of listening to that but it seems like something she could use at this point in the story yeah and and her her mother balking at her at Paula turning down the money yeah. And she's yeah. like, you know, she's seeing it from a sort of coldly, but like probably correctly practical view. It's like, you said no to that and it could have been done, you yeah. know, like that. And yes, he wouldn't have gotten the apology, which is, you know, which would hurt. But like, come on, like, what do you think you're going to get by pursuing this? And then we immediately or almost immediately see exactly what Paula subjected to in that um, deposition or whatever it is. Yeah. And remember, Paula wanted to settle and it was her husband and Susan and, right. you know, Ann Coulter, by, you know, secretly behind the doors um, who made her not settle. So, you know, if Paula was really acting like her mother's daughter, she would have be out of this mess by now. Yeah. You know, because if she settled, it would be over and they wouldn't have the leverage and, you know. Um, there is absolutely no concern for what Paula might need in the in the future right beyond all of this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you said, pretty much immediately after we go to her deposition and she goes face to face with Bob Bennett, um, who is Clinton's lawyer. And he is um, polite, but really, really tough and kind of springs on her this deposition from this guy named Dennis Kirkland, who basically claims that um, makes a pretty wild claim that she gave a bunch of people oral sex at a party. And Paula swears it's not true. I believe her. You know, I don't actually know if the historical record has proved whether or not this actually happened. But, you know, I, I think the Paula that we've been given on the show is pretty forthright about what she did and didn't do in these kind of matters. Yeah. And I'm not sure about the legal uh, ease of this, but like it's been said now out loud on record. Right. You know, yeah. and even though she vociferously and convincingly denies it, it's still out there. It's still, you know, and they know what, you know, Bennett knew what he was doing. Um, 
and you know just to to watch paula realize in that instant just how horrible this is going to be uh-huh and like you kind of almost wonder if she's like can i just go back outside and take the money like is it too late you know <laughs> um and i mean you know it's 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 tragically you know it's 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 just awful to like think about and 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 to then sort of think about like what i thought the clintons were the clinton administration was as a teenager and then sort mm. of further into my 20s when it was you know you like during the bush years you're like oh i'm I, you know I, I miss clinton and there were a lot of reasons to uh, in a bigger sure. policy level but like man these people were like ruthless and destructive and um yeah it's it's harrowing to watch yeah um and also, while this is all going on around Monica's story in this episode, you're kind of watching Paula suffer through this. And I think even the show hasn't really tipped its hand to it, but like, you know, something even worse is coming to Monica in terms of like public notoriety. But it just it gives you even more of a sinking feeling in your stomach because um, right after this and we'll get more into this later. But Monica is served with her subpoena to appear uh, in the in the trial. And you're like, oh, my God, poor thing. Yeah, well, it's so sad, like watching her be like kind of half excited for revlon and making all her plans and having her little going away party and telling people she's going to new york and you're like how much is she aware that her life is about to completely like fall apart and it's her life is going to be forever changed in about a few weeks you know yeah yeah you kind of feel like she's not aware at all um but so the the scene that breaks up these two paula scenes is uh with juanita juanita broderick who is a a new character in the show um, so you see her, she's at home in, I think, Van Buren, Arkansas, and these um, two people knock on her door. There are two lawyers who basically are asking her to, um, you know, to participate in the Paula Jones lawsuit. Richard, do you know who these two people are? I don't. I thought they were just kind of like, they, they, they got the most kind of like down-home lawyers from the firm to come to the house because that might be they might be more in common with Juanita Broderick. I don't know. Uh, well, that does seem they? to be what they did. Uh, yeah. But so they are they're two real people, uh, the Lamberts, who were a married pair of attorneys, and they are the parents of Miranda Lambert. No way. They are. <laughs> oh my goodness. So this is something I learned. So this whole scene uh, is in Slow Burn, the uh, Slate podcast that we've talked about a couple of different times. Um and they recorded this conversation with Juanita Broderick. So we actually know exactly what happened um, in that scene. Um, but yeah, they're Miranda, Lam they're Miranda Lambert's parents who make this cameo in uh, this story. Wow. So they, I guess they could record it because like, Arkansas was a one-party consent I, state Yeah, or I guess. We, yeah. we definitely get into some like yeah. party consent states. Um, I should say they were private investigators. I don't know that they were lawyers. Um, oh, but yeah. Okay. But they do. I mean, their whole like down home thing seems to really work on Winnie Robert. You know, she's like, I want you to pray on this. And uh, that kind of gets her attention. Miranda Lambert's parents are right wing private investigators. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they have continued to be uh, uh, private investigators or how right wing they were. I don't know if they were just okay. kind of doing it for I don't know. But uh, yeah, you can definitely learn more about that entire sequence on Slow Burn, which is fascinating. Um, so Juanita Roderick, though, is really fascinating. I mean, she so she's someone who I remember knowing about very vaguely throughout my life, I guess. And then in the 2016 election is when I think a lot more people started oh, right. talking yep. about her. Is that is that the same for you? What, like where her name comes up for you? Yeah, I feel like she was one of the names where when I, well, it was the, the Trump campaign was like bringing her and a couple other people to Clinton accusers to the debates, right? Yes. That's what it was. Yeah. That, I think um, the, the first debate or at least the one that came right after the Access Hollywood tape dropped. Yeah. It was one of those things where you heard the name and you're like, oh, wow, I haven't heard that name in many years, you know, <laughs> yeah. but like, of course, the immediate association is like, it's right there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So she had accused Bill Clinton of raping her in 1978 um, when she was a volunteer for his campaign. They were at a hotel. She kind of wanted to meet with him to talk about nursing home policy and you know what she describes is pretty horrifying. It's very easy to find online. Um, and she had told a lot of a lot of people about it contemporaneously. And then the rumors started circulating around the time that Bill Clinton was running for president. And apparently there were national reporters who kind of got wind of it, but she would never talk. And, you know, as you see in the show, she just really didn't want to get herself dragged in. And I think she perhaps rightly was uh, a little fearful of the power that the Clintons had to kind of um, intimidate people, as we see with Paula Jones. Um but so she gets mentioned in the Star Report, you know, jumping ahead of what we see in this, because um, she had she had done an affidavit that said that nothing ever happened. She kind of recanted her accusation and then recanted the affidavit and got mentioned in the Star Report, but basically as a footnote. So it was after the Star Report came out and effectively after Clinton escaped impeachment that she became kind of a major part of the story. And 
she had just had so much skepticism poured on her throughout because of the reason that a lot of rape claims are hard to objectively prove because it's, you know, two people alone in a room. And so when Me Too really got started in 2017, after the 2016 election, is when you start seeing a lot of high profile writers saying, hey, actually, we probably should have paid more attention to this. Like there's a, a New York Times op-ed that just basically says, I believe Juanita. Um, and she has also become a pretty strong Trump supporter in the process. And she, when Christine Blasey Ford came out with her accusations, get Brett Kavanaugh, we'll get to him. Um, she basically, you know, said that she was lying. So she, the real Juanita Boddock is a really complicated figure. And this is another thing that Slowburn gets into that, you know, the final episode of that season is basically like her legacy is a lot more complex than the way that we've, you know, begun to think about Monica Lewinsky. Um, but I think she's really important, both in terms of how this story is and to kind of scramble the way we think about our allegiances, as we have talked about throughout the show, about who was done right and who was done wrong in this time. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's it's it's this is not something that falls on party lines, you know, like yeah. it is it's 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 human. It's not political, you know, and I mean, there's obviously a political dimension to it. But, um, you know, you think about Broderick and, and, and her, you know, where she's thrown support in, you know, in recent years and all that. And like, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure there are a multitude of reasons for for why that is. But like one of them might be. I'm just postulating here that like this is deeply traumatizing and mm-hmm. she wants to run away as far as she, as she can from her traumatizers, you know, yeah. and and uh, and that that distinction was pretty clearly plainly made in 2016. You know, you're either support the Clinton machine or you're with the other person, you know. Yeah. And, and um, I don't know. I just like it. it's it's absolutely you know, just awful to think about how these women were just chewed up and manipulated and you know kind of gaslit and all this stuff and 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 all the while the clinton years by some were being greeted as this like great you know second third reawakening and american prosperity and liberalism and all that and behind the scenes all of this you know just annihilating stuff was happening well that seemed to seems to lead us well to the next point i want to get into which is bill clinton himself in this episode who we see uh only in a handful of scenes too but uh his first one, I think, really speaks to what you're talking about there, where he's rehearsing his deposition for uh, the Paula Jones lawsuit and says JFK didn't have to answer to this shit, um, which is, you know, true. Um, and then he kind of just like blows the stack at some underling about, um, you know, how times have changed just saying, like, do you know how much I've done for women? No one supports women more than me and like names all of the women he's appointed to positions, which. But that was the argument at the time. Like, it feels so transparent watching this on the show, but that's absolutely was part of the conversation. Right. How could someone who has, you know, appointed an unprecedented level of women to high cabinet positions also be doing this to other women in hotel rooms and very, yeah. you know, all that? And it's like easily like mm-hmm. like and, and, and we could almost read the appointments as cover or, or something, you know, maybe those two things weren't really working in, in as much concert as, you know, as it would seem. Maybe they were distinctly different parts of his per- temperament or belief system or whatever. But like. It certainly was politically useful for the people support, you know, protecting him, I guess. Yeah. And, and for his own ego, obviously. I mean, at least as this scene kind of imagines it, like like both uh, comparing himself to Kennedy. <laughs> and <laughs> He was compared to Kennedy by other people. I, I remember that comparison existing. Maybe he started it, but I, no, I remember sure. other people saying it. And, and, and bitterly regretting not having done the things, but but like yearning, having a sort of nostalgia for past impunity, you know, <laughs> in the way that we 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 wish we had the Condé Nast bar cart still or whatever, you know, <laughs> um, it's it's gross, you know, and I yeah. think that Clive Owen is doing a really good job of being gross, but also reminding you with it in a kind of like dreadful, like sickening way of like just he, that he had that innate kind of appeal of a politician, like of a mm-hmm. successful politician, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something where you, you know, we see him on the phone with Monica and he's like charming and, you know, almost seems kind, even though yeah. he's not, he's do- not do- actually being kind. Well, and charming in this really pivotal moment where he's on the phone with her and, you know, she's on the politician's witness list and he's he suggests that she get a lawyer and get an affidavit. Um, and he doesn't tell her to lie, but he just says, Monica, what would you want to say? Yeah. And that's it. That's all it takes. And. You can imagine that's how a lot of these conversations happen. Like maybe how we talked to Vernon Jordan. We don't see that. But like he has a way of getting people to his side of the truth without without ever saying anything, you know, legally <laughs> viable. 
So then there's one more scene after this with Bill uh, in which Monica goes back to the White House and man, they just keep exchanging presents. Like every time she shows, he is like a stack of stuff that he's bought for her. And I can't figure out how he would have time to like go to a gift shop and buy her like a little statue on a trip to Vancouver. But apparently that's what happened, right? You've seen the American president, Katie. He tells the limo <laughs> to stop and he gets out and goes to the gift shop. That's true. And no one asks any questions about who he's going to give that statue to. There's something so, I don't know, banal and sort of sad about these gifts, like a stuffed animal and like, I know. you know, something from a gift shop. And what is that? A blanket he gives her or something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if he's like for the big city and it's like, oh, yeah, big blankets in New York City. That's exactly what you think of, like, you know, and there, I, I, there's just something so like she's kind of thinking that they're thoughtful because she's grafting that onto them. Yes. But they're like what the kind of absentee dad brings home from the business trip to the kids. It's like, yep. I don't know. I just saw this at the airport. Yep. Like there's no meaning behind it from his side of things. Yeah, she at least has a sense in that earlier episode to tell Betty that so much of the stuff he he gets her is ugly, which I was right, like, that's yeah, right. yes, correct. Yeah. But that's when she's angry at him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and this scene is so sad because, you know, it, it gets to the end. You know, basically, she's going to New York. He knows it's over. Like, he's broken up with her effectively. And she says, I'll never be in this room again. And is so wistful about it. And you get why, you know, it's like the the closing of a door on a chapter in your life. Like you get sad about those things, even if you're Monica and you're sad about the end of like <laughs> extremely do- toxic and unhelpful relationship. And I think that something about it is like, you know, it's like the scene at the end of Argo where they're like the plane takes off and they all cheer and breathe a sigh of relief. And it's like we got away. And I think <laughs> she, she thinks she's getting away. Yeah. Yes, it was been very stressful getting to the airport. And there's all this stuff with, you know, subpoenas and whatever. But she thinks that like it's almost wheels up. And that's yep. why it's like so extra sad. And it's like, no, the plane is about to crash, you know, yep. and yep. and she doesn't know and thinks she's kind of, you know, like sweetly closing a chapter of her, you know, post-adolescence. And it's like far, far, far from over. And yeah, it doesn't even say to her in that scene, like, this is going to be a crazy story you tell your grandchildren someday. Yeah, which is a, a sick thing to say to her. <laughs> and also reflects on his ego, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it could have, I guess, could have been true at some point. But like, maybe no matter what happened, maybe Lewinsky still would have looked back at that as the abuse of power that it was, you know. Yeah. Even if nothing had happened, come out publicly. You know, I have a friend who I grew up with who's, you know, has talked about how her grandmother, I think, uh, was they had an affair with FDR on like some of his trips south. So oh, wow. that that was a family story. So honestly, it could have worked out uh, had everything else that we see in this episode not transpired. Um. All right. So then. Before we get to Monica and Linda, uh, we should talk about the star team because we are getting introduced to Ken Starr. Um, we've seen Colin Hanks, who is the FBI agent, Mike Emick, um, briefly in the first episode where, you know, kind of see Linda's sting operation with Monica. Um, but then we have this opening scene where, um, you know, all these people, all these investigators are waiting in a conference room for Ken Starr to walk in the room. Um, and he, he walks in saying this is not going to be pleasant um, because they basically all realize that their Whitewater investigation is not um going to go anywhere they can't recommend impeachment um i think it's interesting that it establishes star and some members of the team is just like to some extent they're just trying to follow the law like they feel certain bill clinton bill clinton did something wrong but they know that they're legally limited um you know there's this one guy jackie who's kind of like no we gotta like pin him to the wall um but then otherwise they're kind of like it seems like they're trying to do the right thing yeah yeah uh (laughs) no i think i mean yes i mean they are, I think they're, they're trying to be by the book, you know, and mm-hmm. and I, I whether that's out of, you know, a sort of like noble respect for the law or if it's just like, no, we have to dot every I, cross every T, you know, because we want this to be airtight, you know. Yeah. Um, And then but then you see kind of later when they find out about Monica, and they, they wire Linda like. There is a certain that's not recklessness exactly, but a, 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 they, they move a lot quicker, it seems, than they did on Whitewater. Like it's a little bit less yeah. um, by, you know, sort of meticulous, I guess. Yeah. And just, you know, the fact that they started off by investigating these real estate deals gone wrong and it ends with, you know, talking about a sex scandal like that is kind of the weird mission creep that became really central to the impeachment debate, which I imagine we'll see later on the show. Um, and, you, you know, credit to Ken Starr. He's just like, I don't know if this is part of my conversation um you know he's kind of like later in the episode you see him like they start talking about the you know details of the sexual affair and he's like oh i don't need to know that <laughs> it's like okay right start. right which is like yeah he you know that's 
he doesn't, I guess, in, in that sense, but it's also just another little indicator of like, I, I don't care what actually happened with them. That's not, you know, that's beside the point. I, I don't care about her, you know. All I need is proof that he lied, you know, under oath or whatever. Yeah. And um, so, you know, once again, this, we see in this episode this intense thing, Monica sort of saying goodbye to the, you know, goodbye clocks ticking to the White House. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge, meaningful, emotional thing for her. Cut a couple, you know, couple scenes later. Oh, I don't need to hear about that. Anyway, go, you know, move on, you know. And it's just like it's tossed away like nothing, you know, um, because it, it, it ultimately didn't mean anything to these people. It was all about catching him. Yeah. When you see, so, you know, to get to where Linda meets Ken Starr and his team, we kind of have to like go back in Linda's story. But when they get wind of Linda and her tapes, the, you know, this guy just comes running into the office being like, oh, my God, he's got a mistress. We've got tapes. Vernon Jordan's involved. Like they are psyched that this is where it's happening. And you can kind of see that kind of like macho investigator energy going into all of this. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a compelling episode in, in part because you see... We've watched all the little pieces of this come in, you know, kind of come into being. And then here are these people putting it all together and being like, holy shit, this is huge, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and you see how many bad decisions everyone's made, mm-hmm. um, and we, whether they was a totally unforced error or they had to make the lesser of, you know, the, the, the sort of least bad choice that they set before them. But it all just kind of piled up in this strangely perfect way. Uh, to you know, to to nail him, I guess, essentially, and and um, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of, I don't know, it's it's kind of remarkable how the show was constructed in that way, like yeah, like all these component parts then just kind of snapping together in this episode. Yeah, actually, that might be a good way to go into uh, my interview with Hallie Pfeiffer because I talked. You know, she was in the writers' room for the whole season. This is the episode that she's credited on, but the way TV writers' rooms works is you all kind of break the story together. And I asked her like, how did you? untangle all of these threads and she you know mentioned parts of it where she'd be like hang on a second how did the star team know about the hat pin and her subpoena like and i don't actually know either i think it's maybe a mystery but um anyway we talk about that and a lot of details of this episode so let's listen to that interview with uh, this episode's writer hallie pfeiffer i'm claire fallon and i'm emma gray we're culture writers podcasters and hosts of the show love to see it every week we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows rom-coms and other romance narratives We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So, Hallie, I know that you were a teenage girl when the Monica Lewinsky scandal happened, because I know this because we went to college together. Obviously, we're the same age. Um, so when we've had people on the show before, I basically just start by asking them like what their memories of this period are and uh, and what did you excavate about them by working on this show? Oh my gosh. Well, just hearing you ask that question gives me a really visceral memory of what it felt like to be in this writer's room. Um, uh, and what it felt like to meet Monica Lewinsky for the first time. You know, I will say that Uh, you know, to answer the first part of your question, I remember the scandal mostly, I'm sort of embarrassed to say peripherally through what I was told by my parents. I Mm -hmm. wasn't really reading the newspaper or interested in the news beyond sort of what I absorbed through osmosis from the adults in my life as a teenager in, in middle school. I remember my mom would always like, joke like here's a newspaper care to read it and I was like mom get out of my face and um (laughs) I will say I grew up in a liberal home um and I remember the vibe was um uh not I don't remember the term witch hunt being thrown around but I remember the vibe was like this is unfair to Clinton Mm -hmm. yes he screwed up um and no it's not a great look and also we love him And I kind of feel like the vibe was like, yeah, he shouldn't have done this, but like, that's Clinton. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what did you expect him not to get a blowjob in the Oval Office? I mean, I'm sort of joking, but like the vibe was like, yeah, he's a sexy saxophone playing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of renegade president. And this is what we love about him. And yes, he's a womanizer and everyone knows. And we're not upset that it happened so much though. It was scandalous that it had happened in the oval office because at least I remember like JFK had the decency to like, you know, 
do it elsewhere. And I remember the slut shaming of Monica, though I did not um, know that phrase. And I remember the body shaming. And I remember not being terribly scandalized by that as a young person. Mm -hmm. And that is the part that I had the most horror around in getting into this writer's room and starting to do the research and in meeting her and realizing that I, even as a teenage girl who didn't even pick up a newspaper was a part of the problem because I absorbed the um, rampant misogyny that went hand in hand with the way that this story was told. And I didn't really see anything terribly wrong with it at the Mm -hmm. time because I was so indoctrinated by uh, the, uh, by the culture. And Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that I had a chance to revisit it on my own and that others are getting a chance to revisit it now uh, with this pretty um, masterful retelling, which I don't feel embarrassed to say, even though I'm a part of it, because I think almost all the credit goes to the executive producers, especially Sarah Burgess and um, Brad Simpson. Yeah. And the way these actors are portraying these characters, which is mind blowing. Um, Speaking of the fat shaming and the body shaming specifically you brought up. So in this episode, episode five, you start, uh, by seeing Jake Tapper, uh, yeah. youthful Jake Tapper, who like I, you know, of course, immediately pause to be like, what? And so you Google Jake Tapper. And so I found the essay he wrote in the Washington City paper in 1998, yeah. where he was, yeah, I guess he was like what, in his early 20s at the time. Or, and he talks about he kind of has this idea of being like, you know, be nice to her. Like she was a nice girl, like he's defending her. But he's also like, well, she was a little chubby, but, you know, I, I thought know. she was pretty. And it like really boggled my mind. So there's that. But I just like. To go to the episode specifically, when did uh, when were you guys clear that Jake Tapper was going to play this pivotal role in uh, in this episode? It's so funny. We had gone back and forth, you know, in a writer's room, you know, there's that cliche of like all the cards on the board. Um, and then there is like a sort of like a slush pile of like cards that were like, oh, if we can work Jake Tapper in, if we can work this in, like. And Jake Tapper was always this card that was like in the upper right hand corner because we couldn't figure out where to put him. But we're like, just the detail that Monica went on a date with Jake Tapper is so wild. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like an aside in um, the Andrew Morton book, which was, you know, her authorized biography. He's written everyone's authorized and some unauthorized biography. And um, we were all like, whoa, 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 what? Like, why do we breeze by the Jake Tapper date? And there was something really tragic about it in a way, which um, I think a lot of the women in the room, and there were only three women in the room and two men, it was a tiny, tiny room. But like, I think, uh, you know, the women in the room could relate to in some ways, which is like, oh my gosh, there seemed to be this like guy who seemed to be available my age. And I just went for like... The guy who was deeply unavailable and 20 years older, which mm-hmm. like those days are behind me. But I spent, you know, years being like, mm, who has like a stop sign on his head? I'll chase that over. <laughs> chase that guy. <laughs> and that's what we tried to evoke, you know, in all of the episodes, which is like, how is Monica like us, you know? And how is Linda like us? You mm-hmm. know, got excoriated for her famous statement, which spoiler alert will come later. Like, you know, she gave this press the statement where she said, I am you and people were laughing at her, but she really believed that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think for us as writers and especially for the actors too, we really had to answer like, how are these people just like us? And Monica went on a date with a, an available guy and she was too obsessed with an unavailable one to pursue that. And in many ways that was the healthy decision for her. Um, and in terms of the way that he spoke about her, it's horrible. <laughs> and we found that, um, you know, doing the research from his side. And unfortunately, that was very common at the time. I think no one batted an eye at saying that she was, you know, a- a commenting on her body at all. And um, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, it's, I'm so grateful that we've evolved. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not to spoil the episode, I talk much about it, but like, you know, the historical record points us to where we're going to get to the point where the star team and Monica meet. But this is the episode where so many of these balls are up in the air, like Vernon Jordan's getting involved, yeah. and the apologist is giving her deposition, like, and the whole saga is so complicated. Like, I've been listening to old podcasts and reading books and trying to, like, piece back together how all of these threads come together, because how Ken Starr gets involved with Monica Lewinsky is really convoluted. It's so really crazy. So how did you guys work on that and, like, just what was the key to, to keeping those all together and not losing it in the whole time? Because it's not easy. It was so hard. This was by far the hardest job I've ever had. Um, 
I was, I, 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 I'm so grateful. I didn't know what I was getting into because I think I would have been too intimidated and it was (laughs) priceless because it's informed every job I've had since then. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we were sent like a stack of books this high, um, for everyone listening at home, uh, which is everyone but me and Katie, <laughs> you know, that was the size of my body. Um, yeah, taller than a baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, devoured everything. Every writer listened to all 22 hours of the taped phone calls between Monica and Linda. Um, and listened, you know, in addition to the books, just listened to a ton of books on tape, um, watch you know we had an amazing research team so we just had to devour this stuff but it was even with that it was still very confusing and even watching it the other night like I watched the seven episodes you know that we've been allowed to see the other like almost all in one day and I texted one of the other writers I'm like I'm so so sorry to trouble you with this I still don't understand how the hat pin ended up in the Sabina. I still don't know. And he's like, I don't remember. And it's driving me crazy. I Googled, how did the hat pin end up? And I don't know. I don't know if we ever found out. Like, it's so convoluted because it all is, you know, there were the lawyers who called themselves the elves sort of yep. um, headed up by Ann Coulter. And, um, and they were pulling strings behind the scenes and they did a really good job because they left uh, pretty seamless tracks in many, in many instances. And so I believe with this hat pin, which is in this episode, I don't think that's a spoiler alert. It was a sort of uh, behind the scenes sort of pulling strings with involving the Jones lawyers and maybe Lucy Ann Goldberg, who's such a delicious character. Oh my God. And all of these people were just like obsessed with, yeah, being these little like Christmas elves and their version of Christmas was the Clinton impeachment and they were successful, though obviously not in their final goal, which was to have him removed from office because he did something that no one expected, which is he was like, no, thanks, I'm not leaving, which laid the ground for uh, our former president to do the exact same thing. Um, you Speaking of Christmas for the elves, like this is the, the Christmas episode of this, you know, every, every show yeah. is a Christmas episode. But you know, oh, like we all know that like, you know, the Monica gets in with the FBI in early January and that Linda loves Christmas. So like this timeline makes perfect sense for the story that we're telling. So when you guys realize that that's happening, like how did you figure out how to get Linda's love of Christmas in there and have it be in this episode really indicative of her character. And then so sad at the same time, like the convergence of Christmas with what's happening for Monica is really heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. I love this question. I feel so deeply honored that I got to write the Christmas episode. I do feel like I maybe maybe I can take credit for pitching a Christmas episode. And I feel like everyone laughed at me and then they're like, Oh wait, she loves Christmas. Linda loves Christmas. (laughs) They're like, this isn't new girl. And then they're like, Oh wait. (laughs) And so I think I'm uh, yeah, I I will say Linda's love of Christmas is something that still tickles me pink. I did like undercover call her Christmas store. This was when she was still alive in um, Virginia and asked a couple questions to do research about things that we could include in the Christmas um, display at her mm-hmm. house. You know, she, it's documented that she would start decorating and I believe like September, like she <laughs> was qu- quite a devotee. And um, I think the idea of commingling Christmas with, you know, the subpoenas, because Monica and Linda receiving these subpoenas is when like they really started to fast track the, um, the anxiety for Monica and the excitement probably mixed with anxiety for Linda. And that did all happen around this, uh, around the same time. Um, I'm just trying to remember how, that all happened. I just remember we had the idea of the two of them like handing out Christmas cards in the office and starting the episode with that. Um, we had had a whole section where like Ken stars jogging and like listening to Christmas carols on an old Walkman. But that oh, I bet he fun. would have. I bet he would have though. He seems like the type. It made me laugh so much. Um, <laughs> but you know, I understand why things have to end up on the editing room floor <laughs> on the floor before that. But yeah, I do think the juxtaposition of Linda being a real devotee of Christmas and being someone who arguably struggled with, you know, Christian principles of loving thy neighbor. And some could argue that's exactly what she did do, which is she loved her neighbor, which was her country. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was a really interesting juxtaposition. And I think the, the episode doesn't really answer like whether what she did was, um, 
you know, along Christian values or not, because it's really not for us to answer. But I do think what's devastating is like the scene in the car mm-hmm. between the two women that I, I love, you know, and I'm really proud of because Monica really loves Linda, you know, she really loves her as a friend. And I think it's tricky to know whether Linda loved her back or whether she let herself open her heart to that. But in that scene, Monica's really begging her to like embrace the Christmas spirit and have mercy. Yeah. And Linda able to grant her that in that scene that's very painful and both women do a beautiful job with that scene yeah this episode is you get this interesting contrast between bill clinton and monica where monica is basically saying to linda like hey lie for me like she's being very transparent about it and whereas you have clinton who's like well what would you want to say i know jury and like he's so subtle about it and it's tricky i imagine for you guys because like there's a lot we can know you have monica with you there's a lot we can know about linda Tripp, but like the clintons are a little vaguer but how did you guys come to that depiction of how Bill Clinton operated in this and who was lying to who and, and what he actually said? It's so fascinating. So it's all documented. I think what a lot of people might not realize, and I certainly didn't, I was a massive fan of American crime story uh, both seasons um, before getting to work on it is it's just religiously researched. So yeah. there's almost nothing that happens in the show that you can't point to a book in a well-sourced uh, history document and reference. Um, and that's for many reasons, one of which is creative, obviously, and one of which is um, legal. And um, it's well, you know, it's um, the, all of that, you know, Bill Clinton obviously is um, an attorney and he, he knew, you know, so he, in all of, you know, uh, Monica's documentation, um, she never says that he told her a lie because he didn't. And she learned that from him. So like, you know, one of the articles of impeachment that was drawn up against him was um, subordination of perjury, which is basically trying to convince someone to perjure themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And that was the same for Monica. And technically neither of them did do that because she never said to Linda, I believe like, Hey, lie. She was Mm -hmm. like, you can just say, I don't know. Yeah. And so she was sort of like a really good pupil of his. She never said, say, no, he never had an affair with this woman. You can just say, I don't know, which of course is technically lying. But I think she was very sensitive of like not wanting to put her friend in this position. And at the same time, Linda put herself in this position. Um, And Monica was, you know, she made choices that she says today that she regrets. Um, And she never was villainous, you know, to the point of saying, like, actually say you never met me or like, you know, she never told her to outright lie. She would massage the truth for the sake of me and my future. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the way throughout the entire series, the way that Linda is putting herself into these situations, like where she's like, you know, she says to uh, Michael Escobar or something like, I can't get involved with this, but actually here's this one. Like, she's so excited to be in the drama and when the uh when the star guys arrive at her house and she's like mad at them for not being brief like the glee with which she is getting into this situation is so palpable so like how did you guys just thread that throughout like that's a really complicated human emotion to have to be kind of willing drama upon yourself and obviously sarah paulson's bringing that out in her performance but how did you guys find the way to to tell that throughout this story hilariously so much of it she did our job for us Mm -hmm. like when you listen to the tapes this is like another writer in the room just kept pointing out like she's so funny you know there's something like it's not funny like haha look at that kooky woman like she's actually quite acerbic she's Mm -hmm. very witty she has a very dry droll wit and so she did a lot of the work for us like in these well-sourced history books um I just sent a friend who wrote me recently and was like, I love the show. And you know how did you guys come up with this? I was like it's in the book she literally said this you know, there's in this episode, she calls, um, uh, uh, she calls Ken Starr's office. <laughs> and this is from, this is from this book by Ken Gormley called uh, the death, death of American virtue. She calls and they pick up and she goes like, you know, sucking on her cigarette. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> and they're like, who, 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 this is, Ken Starr, it's the district attorney. Like, what, what are you talking about? And she, then she goes on this whole thing. She goes, okay, let's say I had a friend and this friend was having an affair with a big man in the white house. And let's say that man was the president and let's, and she goes this whole thing. 
And they're like, wait, are you talking about you? She's like, okay, well, let's say it's me. <laughs> it's just like, it's truly like she acts like she's in a noir film. Yep. So she did a lot of the work for us, but it was complicated. And I will say, I'm remembering now, like the first draft that I turned in, I got a note that was like, she's so contemptuous of these guys. Like, mm. why would she be so contemptuous? Like, wouldn't she be excited that the prosecutors and the FBI agents showed up. And I was like, yeah, but like, this is what it says in the book. And they're like, oh, right, right, right. Like, how do we, it makes no sense. Like the way she behaves makes no sense. And so yeah. I think, you know, Sarah herself has said to this day, she's like, there's, you know, decisions that she made that I still really grapple with. And mm-hmm. I think um, one detail I'll just quickly slip in that I love is like, she invited you know, these prosecutors and FBI agents to her house and was deeply like overtly contemptuous to them. She literally said to them, you're not asking the right questions. <laughs> and then offered them her Christmas cookies. It's like she did both of these things. So I think we really just looked at the text and just tried to get in her head. And it's like, and Sarah did a brilliant job of this, both Sarah's, Burgess and Paulson. Like, how would I feel if I'm constantly overlooked by everyone in my life, my father, my ex-husband, my children, my employers, my coworkers. And I know that I have more to offer. And even these men, all men, except for one woman who's constantly dismissed as well. One of the um, prosecutors show up and are dismissing me as well. I might bite, bite back as well. So mm-hmm. yes, and do it in a graceful way, but, and there's comedy in that. And, and, it, and, and there is excitement and there is anger at once. And I think that's what makes it so makes her so fun to write. Um, there's less of this in this episode, but I think in previous episodes, uh, like, you know, talking about Monica or, um, talking about Linda's real behavior where you're like, okay, she really did that. Like there's a lot of really unflattering things for Monica in this where she's being 22 and naive or kind of being a brat about being offered a job at the UN and all this stuff that like, when I watch it, I admire Monica more for, cause I know she was participating with you guys and kind of being like, no, like you need to show this part of it. So just from your perspective, like what were those conversations with her like and where, how did you guys kind of feel emboldened to, you know, with her permission, go for these things and really give you this proper portrait of a 22 year old woman who would get into the situation the way she did. Mm, That was really interesting because I think all of us innately felt, well, I'll speak for myself in the first many uh, drafts. I Monica was not that interesting on the page. She was kind of backfooted. She was kind of a victim. She was um, not very active. Things were just happening to her. It was very Mm -hmm. passive. And I didn't know what else to do because I was like, I think I, I'm not proud of this, but I understand why now in retrospect, I think I didn't want to hurt her. I felt so much I felt so badly, you know, the more and more I read about her, it's, I, I realized like trauma doesn't even begin to describe what happened to her. And I, as I said, at the beginning of this conversation, like I was complicit in that, you mm-hmm. know, as a teenager who laughed at the late night segments about her, you know, among other things and did think like that this was quote unquote her fault. I'm sure, you know, on some level, like, and did call it the Lewinsky scandal instead of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal at the very least. Like I was part of the misogyny without realizing it. And I only realized the extent of this um, when I, when we first met her and she came into the room and I I almost started crying because I was like, Oh my God, I, I was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think many of us were, if not all of us, to some extent. And this is all to say she is such a deeply inspiring and admirable person in so many ways. But one of which is that she said from the beginning, I want you to be real with my character. I don't want you to um, mince words. Um, and I want you to tell the story as it actually happened. She was very clear that like she didn't want us. To, she wanted her family to be. Uh, you know, uh, she wanted her family to be portrayed honestly and with love and compassion, which I really admired as well. And um, she was the one, you know, this was all over the press uh, that really advocated for um, the infamous moment of her showing her thong to the president Mm -hmm. to be um, included, which I was gratified by because I had petitioned for that as well because I think what makes the story very interesting 
is that it was an abuse of power, obviously, and she was very participant in it. Mm -hmm. And she was very active in pursuing him. And she did have agency and she wasn't a shrinking violet. And I think the way that she is portrayed on the page does capture her, which she is funny. She is saucy. She is determined. She is strong-willed. And uh, there's a great line in Flora Birnbaum's episode that I remember Flora flagging and they it stayed in where she goes, have you met me? Like, I'm not going to stop calling until you pick up Linda. Like, <laughs> you know, like she's, when she wants something, she gets it. And mm-hmm. that's a quality that's made her as resilient as she is in the wake of this trauma. And it's gotten her into the trauma in some respects. So I think it would have been dishonest not to portray that. And I applaud that she was not only receptive to that, but also encouraging of it. Okay, so let's go to Monica and Linda, who are, as usual, the heart of the episode. Um, Richard, did you catch the name of the young man who we see Monica meeting at a Mexican restaurant in the beginning of this episode? No, I I did not catch it. Who was Uh, it? He says, hi, my name is Jake, Jake Tapper. And it's Jake Tapper. No, because. Yeah, this is this is a crazy episode with it's like all weird connected. Slur- Everything is connected. <laughs> yeah, Brett Kavanaugh's in there. Um, so yeah, so if you Google Monica Lewinsky, Jake Tapper, he wrote a piece in the Washington City paper, January thirtieth, nineteen ninety eight. So you know, a couple weeks after this big scandal bro- broke, um, that more or less, you know, the the details in the show are a little fuzzy. They met in a different way, but they did go to a Mexican restaurant and basically went on one date. And he's sticking up for her. He's basically saying like, "Hey, this is a nice girl I want to date with. She doesn't deserve." what she's going through um and he kind of acknowledges like obviously i want a piece of the story just like everybody else um but he says i also want to point out that behind this particular bimbo eruptions that the young woman who is not a bimbo who is a fairly sensible sort from what i saw who was never going to be the one holding a press conference alongside a poster board blow up of the star with a back pocket full of the cash she got from selling out um and there's a lot of things like that in this piece where he's like, she's a nice girl. She's not like these other Clinton mm-hmm. accusers. Or he's like, she's really pretty. Maybe a little chubby, but very pretty. Like, it's, I imagine if Jake Tapper saw this now, he would kind of cringe at the way he put some of this stuff. Um, but overall, he wanted to kind of rush to her defense for, I think, a lot of the reasons now that we, you know, are able to see her personality through this. Um, but yeah, they went on a date. Imagine what could have happened. That's really wild. Wow. <laughs> But I think there's something about that, like him defending her. I haven't read the piece, but like Monica, you know, from this wealthy family, well-connected, well-educated, you know, not one of those people, not that Paula lady who sounds so, yeah. you know, whatever. Like there's such a, it, it's interesting how class comes into play, I guess, in, in, in this, among other things. Yeah. Um, he did have another line that was good, again, after saying something like kind of mean, but. Uh, she's leaps and, brown, leaps and bounds prettier than that vacuous mugshot beamed all over the world. You know how some photos of yourself can make you cringe? Imagine if one of those became a new international icon. We should be allowed to pick our own pictures at times like these. Um, I I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> well, well said, Jake. There's a one photo of me that I that someone at a party took years ago as a joke, and I made like an uh, like a kind of like pouty face <laughs> that for years was the go-to photo used <laughs> if someone was writing about me or something, and. Um, not that that happened that often. Not people weren't writing about me that often, but um, it's just like I'm like, I please scrub that from the internet. Like <laughs> it's really bad, and that's you know before we could expect any pictures taken of us to go, go public. You know, I think that was like literally her like ID shot from work. Yeah. What a nightmare. Um, we'll get we'll get there. Um, okay, so to Linda, uh, she's at work and has her big stacks of beautiful invitations for her Christmas party, uh, that she's getting ready to send out. Um. And she finds out from Monica that she's going to go get the blue dress cleaned because she's going to 21 with her whole extended family. Uh, talk about evidence that Monica came from from money, that she's doing like a big family dinner at 21. Um, do you remember what Lucianne, so she calls up Lucianne, her book agent, Margo Martindale. And you remember how Lucianne describes the, the stained blue dress? White gold. White gold. Ugh. I know. <laughs> Makes me feel like Ken Starr. Like, I don't want to yeah, know. Don't tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Linda more or less convinces Monica not to get it cleaned, which is, uh, and it's funny that she sets it up by, I don't, I don't know if it's a lie. She's like, my cousin's a DNA something. And I talked to him when I was watching the OJ Simpson trial. I was hooked on it. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. Yeah. What a crazy way to describe the OJ. Yeah. But also, you know, it's funny that it's, um, Sarah Paulson who mm-hmm. was played Marshall Clark. Um, 
And then to get her to not wear the blue dress, she pulls the craziest but like very familiar shit of being like, well, Monica, if you think you look good in that dress, that's what matters, mm-hmm. which just immediately makes Monica back down. And like, I don't know if you have had that. I feel like men don't get this as much, but like I have had that move pulled on me. And oh, my God, is it effective? Katie, I'm a gay man. I get it all the time. <laughs> I don't know if your parents did it to you. That's more of where it's familiar, but yes. No, my yeah, my parents, I, I was not getting it from them as much. But, <laughs> but, you know, to see, like, to have heard all this, this sort of intimacy of their talk about food and dieting and weight, which is about those specific things, but it's about much more. You know, mm-hmm. it's about self-identity. There's, a, there's such a vulnerability to that, to those exchanges, you know, within anyone's life. To, and for her to use that. To, to use that as the, the crowbar to pry this out, you know, it's just yeah. like, it's so cruel. Yeah. She just knows exactly how to get it. And it works. She gets what she wants, as we all know from the historical record. Yeah. I mean, like in this episode, she's like, she's my very good friend, you know, yeah. oh and, my she, God. and yeah. she's like trying to convince herself, but also tr- again, once again, trying to assert her importance in the story, in the narrative, you know, and it's, it's a very fascinating character study. Whew, yeah, yeah. When we get to um, when she meets with the FBI guys, uh, it gets really intense there. Um, but first, so Monica and Linda go to Crate and Barrel together. Um, I feel like I just remember that Crate and Barrel display from ni- winter 1997. Like, I know I was shopping for those like, Christmas cookie plates. Yeah, it was around the same time as like uh, the, the, the lime green gap sweater with the snowflakes across it. You know that? You know yep. that oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and Monica or Linda tells Monica that she's on the witness list for the Jones suit. and um, it's like, well, Monica, I won't commit perjury. And I love the the little contrast of Monica being like, Linda, just say you don't recall. As compared to Bill Clinton being like, well, what what do you want to say? Like, she's so much worse at it than Clinton is. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you see her kind of trying to to follow the same format. But Linda won't do it. No, no. And uh, and and I think the way that Paulson's performance balances like you know and and the writing too like there's it, it's tricky to sort of be lying to someone's face and and sort of equivocating but not re- revealing why you're equivocating and like kind of serving several masters at once like in in what's supposed to feel like casual conversation like it's just it's a it's a crazy balancing act that probably must have driven her insane yeah. um yeah. you know and in the way that like you know habitual liars it's like you're just it's a ripley you're caught in so many lies like you know it's it's a terrifying kind of thing to think about but paulson just i think nails that that tension yeah um so the monica does get served her papers to appear in the trial and she shows up at linda's christmas party um kind of fully freaking out um i really love this whole sequence like the the feeling of being in a party that kind of has nothing to do with you and you're not in the headspace that at all right for it um, there's very loud Carol of the Bells playing. Um, <laughs> and you were talking about the like individual personal details. This is just so full of it about her like, you know, German words I can't pronounce Christmas decorations. And Susan, the terrible cubicle mate, comes up to compliment her cheese log at the exact right moment. It's a really uh, well done scene. I think there's a, a a nice kind of character comparison in the way when Monica first walks in. And, you know, people like her. People are saying hi to her. And she's like, oh, hi, just just one second, just one mm-hmm, second. You know, be mm-hmm. right back. Cut to someone interrupting Linda. And she goes, not now, Susan. You know, it's like <laughs> their personality, the difference in their personalities could not be more evident in, in yeah. this, this sequence. I love Susan as a character. She's she's giving me a lot of joy. Um, so then Monica finally gets Linda out in her car and tells her what's going on. And it's just this really sad scene where, again, Linda, like, won't give Monica any relief. And then... Starts staring out the window, thinking about Christmas, saying, the closer you get, the nearer you are to the end, which is really sad and ironic, given what they are not even remotely at the end of at this point. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. That's, that's I like that. I like when the shows like this, like that are sort of docudrama, like whatever, take a little pause for some poetry, you know? Yeah. Um, and and that that sort of sentiment about, I mean, literally about Christmas, uh, but also just about anything you look forward to or whatever. and. Um, you know, I w- I rewatched Pleasantville recently, and and yeah. um, the Jeff Daniels character, the sort of lonely wannabe artist, soda shop owner, uh, talks about to Toby McGuire. He's like, oh, well, you know, I-, I look forward to doing the Christmas mural and the Christmas decorations every year, and he's like, it seems silly to just wait for that, you know, this one day all year. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just could have thought about that of like, you know, it's maybe there's a little bit of mocking in the sort of Linda Christmas stuff in the show, but it also is just like it's a it's a it's a telling character detail that like 
this is someone who doesn't feel like she has a lot in her life to sort of look forward to or to be like at you know present tense engaged with mm-hmm. um and so it kind of helps explain why she would get caught up in all this and sort of suddenly be it, it, almost enjoy living this sort of conspiratorial espionage life because what else does she have she has her kids who don't really seem to you know i mean they're teenagers they're not they're just not really there for her and she has christmas village and this one party yeah i did like in this episode that um Linda's kids kind of step up a little bit like yeah. Allison's helping take all the coats at the party and on Christmas morning they seem to be enjoying themselves so you know they're they're teenagers like you said but they're not like they're not the problem in Linda's life Linda's problem is <laughs> no they're not the problem in her life um, and I think it's really sad you know you see Christmas morning and the ki- you hear the kids off camera being excited and being just like friendly to each other and you know whatever and Linda in her bathrobe and, you know, we, I mean, those of us who celebrate Christmas, like we know that ritual. It's a cozy mm-hmm. morning, you know, and she's just sitting there glumly. And she can't enjoy it. You yeah. Know? And ignoring Monica's calls. Yeah. It's just like it's like so. So even this precious thing that should be sort of like unspoilable has been spoiled by this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So after Christmas, things move pretty quickly. Like Monica goes to meet with Vernon Jordan basically to help find a lawyer and, you know, tells lies and says they didn't have a relationship. Um, and then Linda goes, oh, she gives her enough party at the Pentagon, which is very nice. And, um, this guy takes a, uh, disposable camera picture of Linda and Monica together, which I was like, oh boy, that sound, that really, uh, yeah. <laughs> evokes a lot. Um, and then Linda goes and meets with her lawyer and, um, very proudly, like, dumps this bag of tapes on his desk. And he just, he just says, Linda, that's a felony in the most stern terms that, uh, someone needed to say to her at some point. Uh, I love how freaked out he is by his rogue client. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, I mean, sort of tragically funny, like, the way that in this, at least in this show's version of things, like, Linda um, keeps insisting how important she is. You know, I was the last person to see Vince Foster alive. I'm Mm -hmm. high up at the White House. Now I'm at the Pentagon. Like, the White House is at war with me or, you know, like, all this stuff. And it's like, you didn't even, like, look up whether this was legal. You just relied on, on this, like, vampiric book agent in New York. Like, come on. Yeah. I, lo- I love Lucy Ann's comic called being like, well, it's legal in New York. And Linda says, not everyone lives in New York. She's like, yes, I've never understood that. Like, she's just off on her own conversation Totally doesn't give a shit about no. whether or not Linda goes to jail. Like, you know, doesn't no. care that she advised her to do something illegal. You know, it doesn't matter to her. Nope, not at all. Again, these people are incidental their props in the sort of you know the actual seats of powers like kind of you know tactics and and goals yeah yeah so lucianne is how the star team gets word of linda she basically call goes through george conway uh here he is again um to make sure that they know about her and so then they all come to meet um linda at her house it's uh mike emick uh, colin hanks's character and uh, jackie bennett who's kind of, you know he's been kind of like sparring against and they're with a bigger team um and this is just you know the high watermark of linda's self-importance uh you know she basically like they wanted to meet her and she just says i'm in a terrible situation facing prison or worse all because i bore witness to a series of ongoing crimes um and then they ask her you know any kind of clarifying question. And she says, I assumed you'd all come briefed. So dismissive about these guys, Um, which at at this point, I think we know is classic Linda. Yeah. Well, you know, as they say, when they leave the house, they're like, good thing those tapes are there because a jury would hate that woman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that that line belongs to Colin Hanks, who's like, you know, he's Colin Hanks. He's the nice guy. We want to root for him. And he's kind of the voice of reason being like, wait, Linda, this woman is your friend and you're doing all of this. Um, but then he very correctly is like, yeah, jury would fucking hate that lady, which is absolutely true. Um, so then, yeah, so Linda has Linda has already set up her own sting with Monica to wear a wire at lunch in Virginia where it's legal to tape. Um, and they're like, uh, no, we're going to do this with you. So then. Right. Okay. What was she gonna, I mean, was she going to like have like. <laughs> The, the the chunky tape recorder like hidden under no her. I have no idea. I mean, yeah, it's just like. But yeah, like that seems like something she would just assume she could do herself. Um, so then she gets like properly set up, and you know, Monica, to her credit, is suspicious. Like, I think she's looking in Linda's purse for that chunky tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, when Linda goes to the bathroom, and she's just like Linda again is just so bad at drawing information out of Monica. She's just like, well, who who are you upset about? Are you going to lie on the, on the witness right. stand? Right. Um, could you please, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> admit to felony right now yeah, like, speak yeah. directly into my lapel yeah. when you talk um but they get enough you know monica says enough because again she trusts linda so much um and the episode ends with i think this really chilling 
image of her being tailed by this FBI van, of them taking pictures of her walking down the street, like doing nothing. Like, I can't imagine who those photos would be of interest to. Um, but it just kind of shows you the the surveillance that she's already under at this point. Yeah. And I think, you know, to to see to hear them briefly reduced to subject and asset, I think. You know, mm, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, Linda had taken this so far on her own, sort of. I mean, not really realizing that Lucianne was in contact with other people and all these yeah. strings were being pulled behind the scenes. But, like, you know, this, it was relatively DIY and now it's in the FBI's hands. And I think that, like, while Linda does seem kind of excited by that in some ways, it's that sort of like, oh, wow, I've let this get so big and now I have no control over it anymore. And then mm-hmm. you see the FBI's perspective and this is subject and asset. These are just sort of like pieces in a puzzle. They don't, really matter um and they won't matter once this is once they have what they need you know yeah. and it just it's uh it's very sad i mean for both parties more for monica obviously but um it is yeah yeah because it's not going to get better for linda after this you know what's no. coming next is what we saw in that first episode where she says she's meeting monica in the mall and then she's kind of uh in the other hotel room when monica says like i want that like that fucking traitor to see what she's done to me or whatever you know the really awful line yeah um so yeah this is the high point of her you know um insulting the fbi agents who have come to her house and it's like christmas it comes and then is it necessarily what you wanted exactly yep yep smart what? smart writing hallie yeah <laughs> well yeah and this is something we talked about in the interview too it's like you know that you know monica gets pulled by the fbi agents on january 10th or whatever and you know that Linda loves Christmas. So obviously these things really would have been happening at this time. It's kind of an unbelievable confluence of character and real life that they took really good advantage of here. Um, well, anything else, Richard, before we um, you know, head into the next episode in which uh, Monica and the FBI truly meet? I do just want to co- compliment Annalie Ashford because I'm sure it's very hard to articulate with those fake braces. And she does it very well. <laughs> she does. She's so good. And that whole, I mean, we talked about the deposition scene earlier, but the way that she... Her face just crumples, but she smiles to answer Bob Bennett's questions. It's really sad, and and she's really good at it. Well, Richard, um, people can find us on Vanity Fair. Uh, We have Julie Miller, our colleague, is continuing to do great coverage of the show alongside this podcast. Um, It's kind of diving into other historical details. Um, And uh, in the meantime, where can people find you? Well, I I think that, you know, that fake Prada store in Marfa? They're also they did a they did a 1997 Crate and Barrel. So I'm going to go down to Texas and check that out. Uh, and while I'm there, I'll be tweeting at Rylas and writing for VF.com. Uh, until next week, Katie, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm going to be working on perfecting my creamy cheese log for my next <laughs> holiday party. Not now, Katie. <laughs> uh, but until then, I'll be uh, tweeting at uh, Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And thank you, as always, to uh, Dave Gonzalez for his editing and producing support. <laughs>